3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Spike. Morning, Priya. How are you going? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, yeah. A bit seedy. <laughs> a bit seedy, but I'm okay. Thanks. Yeah, no, the early mornings, not that easy. No. <laughs> um, I was saying to Spike earlier, um, I'm writing down from Preston, and uh, maybe it's a bit concerning that for some of that I'm, I'm on autopilot. So, you know, I, I, get into, I get into Fitzroy, and I'm like, huh, I can't really remember much of that ride. Hopefully it's going okay. Um, if my parents are listening, that never happened. I ride safely all the time, and everything is fine, and I'm completely alert. Um, but, yeah, we've got a, a, a really exciting show this week, and Spike... Um, you know, you've done an excellent job of bringing together a pre-record and also a live interview. And we're going to be covering, I guess, for a lot of the show, Homelessness Week, uh, which is this week. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to be speaking to one of our, I guess, one of the City of Melbourne's not-for-profits that provides support to people who are experiencing homelessness in the CBD, well, generally Melbourne and the CBD particularly. And uh, Yeah, we'll be speaking to them. And we'll also be speaking to Meg about a death in custody, Meg Fitzgerald from Fitzroy Legal Service, which is fascinating because it really um, speaks to how stigma, um, systemic racism and discrimination works um, in, in the capital estate. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like, you know, this the tragic um, death in custody of Veronica Nelson in, in 2020 uh, was also something that I think is is kind of also embedded in these broader discussions of housing. She was a really loved member of the public housing community that she lived in um, in Collingwood, and so I think you know thinking about that as as like all interconnected, as you said, within this capitalist system and the sort of you know death making nature of the way that things happen under settler colonial capitalism is something that we have to be attentive to, especially this week, um, you know, when we see a lot of, um, I guess, like a lot of mainstream hand-wringing and gesturing towards um, Band-Aid solutions um, or, you know, I'm sure we will see a lot of politicians doing um, press and, um, you know, photos about uh, their commitment to ending homelessness. Well, we, there was a discussion. I was I was trying to keep track of a, a, a discussion about the rent freeze, and how the Labor government is opposed to a rent freeze. And I think that's one practical that's one practical measure that they that could be implemented to support people that are doing it tough. And they're just adamant that that's not going to happen. So I guess it indicates where they're at. Yeah, I mean, it's you know, I think the 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 fact that even 
I don't know, sort of marginal reforms within the capitalist system are framed as like radical and out of the realm of political yeah. possibility kind of is a gauge of where we're at. But people are obviously fighting this constantly. Yeah. Um, and at the end of the interview, uh, sorry, at the end of this show, I'm also really excited to say that we're going to be joined by Fiona York, who's the executive officer of Housing for the Aged Action Group and Professor Wendy Stone of Swinburne University to, to discuss today's launch of the Aging in a Housing Crisis report. Um, and that's happening at Parliament House in Canberra, so they'll be joining us from there. And this report was commissioned by Housing for the Age Action Group and co-authored by Wendy along with researchers at Western Sydney University and Curtin University. And it's an analysis of the housing circumstances of people in Australia, specifically aged 55 years and older, which I think can often uh, slip by the wayside in mainstream discussions about homelessness is um, thinking about how a lot of people, you know, um, people that are on the age pension can uh, like even are increasingly um experiencing that you know the the australian settler dream of owning property and having a secure retirement having your superannuation be able to pay you out for the rest of your life that's just not a possibility for so many people um and so, yeah, we'll be talking about that later on. And yeah, don't forget, you can also tune into Housing for the Aged Action Group's show, Raise the Roof on 3CR on Wednesdays from 5.30 to 6 p.m., where they cover a lot of like up-to-date activism around housing justice that is relevant to, to people that are older. Um, so yeah, we might... Oh, yeah, can I, can I just Yeah, like I was seeing in the um, news, one of the stories in the news was the techno park, the yeah. public housing estate... And it's interesting that, reflecting back on what happened at Bendigo Street, mm -hmm. was how the council sort of, instead of providing support for the protesters, mm -hmm. almost posits itself as like the government. Yeah. So instead of the council being this place that's closest to the the people and providing support, yeah. instead they sort of that they come across as like we're representing justice, law and order and capitalism in this in this sort of situation. Totally. And I mean like because there are a different like I don't think there's public housing, but there's a different like types of tenure there. And there are okay. people there are people that are um on quite low incomes that have lived there for a long time and have lived there on low rents and are part of the community. Um and it is very much a community. That was my understanding when I was at the at the protest is um you know, local government is the level of government that's meant to be closest to the people, that's meant to involve people in this. And yet the first thing people hear is you have an eviction notice and um, the follow up is here's a referral to mental health and homelessness <laughs> services, <laughs> which is like we're yeah. in the middle of a housing yeah. crisis. Like, are you kidding me? It's yeah. it is ridiculous. Um, also, a plug for Solidarity Breakfast on Sunday, where Annie McLaughlin is going to be playing audio from that rally. Awesome. But for now, we will head to a CSA and we'll come back to you with headlines. You are what you eat, and you are what what you eat. Local Food Connections interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Join us every Sunday morning at 10am on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. From dust to dust, you gotta just trust that upper crust and maintain that good terrain from whence you came. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 
And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 10th of August. There have been reports of a spate of border force raids on sex worker workplaces in Melbourne and other capital cities, and sex workers and advocates are speaking out about it. At least 13 workplaces were targeted, with some raids consisting of 25 officers, including some who were armed with guns. As a result of the raids, two women were sent to detention centres. The Asian Migrant Sex Worker Advocacy Group, uh, Advisory Group continued to advocate for strengthened labour rights for migrant workers and decriminalisation of sex work as the most effective ways to address exploitation. They say that criminalisation, detention, deportation and surveillance of marginalised groups of sex workers is dehumanising, demonstrates gross disregard for their work and human rights and puts migrant workers at more risk of exploitation. In other news this week, there are reports a shutdown is looming between billionaire developer Sam Tarascio and the community of Preston and surrounding areas in the face of a recent announcement by Planning Minister Sonia Kilkenny establishing significant protections over Preston Market. Amongst an ongoing campaign to save the much-loved Preston Market, the developer planned to shrink the footprint of the market by 80% in order to construct luxury luxury high-rise apartments and a retail precinct. Salter Properties has threatened market traders with a non-renewal of leases in the face of significant community pushback against these plans. On Monday this week, the state government has followed through with its April promise to strengthen its protection of the market, including a heritage overlay over the majority of the market. This is accompanied by a requirement for the developers to ensure that traders can continue business as usual while approved developments take place. Save the Preston Market campaigners say they will be satisfied with nothing less than the full preservation of the existing Preston Market and demand the Victorian government publicly acquire the market and give it to the community to run, in a, in a similar approach to Dandenong, South Melbourne and Victoria markets. Okay, and finally in news headlines, uh, residents of Techno Park uh, continue to fight Hobson, Hobson's Bay Council to remain in their rezoned homes, despite extremely poor responses and lack of transparency from council. The council made the last-minute decision on Tuesday to move a planned in-person meeting online in order to avoid a peaceful protest organised by residents and supporters. Residents were then effectively blocked from asking questions in, in the meeting due to a recent council decision against increased transparency for council residents, which requires questions to be submitted in advance. Despite the last-minute change, a group of protesters made their way to the council chambers on Tuesday night and were met, were met with floodlights and traffic barriers outside the chambers. Maribyrnong Councillor George Yakira, uh, yeah, Yakira attended the protest and spoke out against the, quote, spineless absence of five or six Hobson's Bay councillors. They highlighted the brutal irony of Techno Park residents having, having to fight this fight and being threatened with eviction during National Homeless Week. These have been the news headlines for Thursday the 10th of August. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. And just to follow that up uh, with an action, so back to the Preston Market action, um, 
On Saturday, the 12th of August, Save the Preston Market campaigners have organized a hands-around Preston Market demonstration. The time has come, they say, for everyone who loves Preston Market to come together and show our community strength and solidarity by holding hands around the entire Preston Market. And this, again, is a push for 100% of Preston Market and all the traders to stay, uh, stay and for public acquisition. And I will say as well, because it is Homelessness Week and because so much of of the conversation by Salter Properties has also stated that um, you know people at um, people fighting for Preston Market are actually against the housing development in the middle of a housing crisis. I will emphasize that in conversations over the past months with campaigners from Save the Preston Market on 3CR, they have also emphasized that public control of the market actually means public decision making about the provision of affordable housing in the parts of the, um, the precincts that are redeveloped while retaining the market. So it's not an either or, it's a both and kind of question. And it's about community control over a much loved community space while providing homes for people that are affordable in that area. So um, once again, really encourage people to get to Preston Market um, by 11 a.m. under Preston Station is where people are meeting this Saturday, the 12th of August. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855. It's coming up to Science Week again, and that can only mean one thing. Yes, it's the Lost in Science Trivia Night. Monday the 14th of August, 7pm at the Carring Bush Hotel in Abbotsford. Come early for dinner, bring a team, win prizes, show off your brains, and raise money for science on the radio. Send an email to book your table to lostinsci at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-I-N-S-C-I at gmail.com. And we will sort you out for tickets. Lost in Science Trivia Night, Monday the 14th of August. Remember to tune in each Thursday at 8.30am for all your sciencey goodness. an extra layer for the cooler months we've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say workers radio available now online or at the station perfect for layering when you're out on the street they'll have you picket line ready for winter at $40 you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by quality tops in reservoir order now and we'll post one out for $8.50 or you can pick it up from the station Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Three CR is radical radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? 
we need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire in Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bunzel's Fire. 11am to 2pm every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. And we're back on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. It is about 7.17 in the morning. And up next, we're going to hear an interview uh, from Megan Fitzgerald. Would you like to tell us what that's going to be about? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so on January 2nd, 2020, we heard the news that proud Gundichamara, Jaja Warong, Wiradjuri and Yorta Yorta woman, Veronica Nelson, was found dead in a prison cell after being picked up by Vic Pohl on shop theft allegations. When the announcement was made in the papers some months later that Veronica had passed away from a rare disorder called Wilkie Syndrome, the news tore a gaping hole in Veronica's family, community and culture. After a lengthy coronial, in- uh, after a lengthy coronial in- inquest held into Veronica's passing, it was, was overseen by Coroner Simon McGregor that heard from over 50 witnesses and experts. On the 30th of January 2023, Coroner McGregor published his decision. To discuss Coroner McGregor's findings and what this tells us about stigma and the way systemic racism and discrimination functions in the capitalist colonial state, we pre-recorded um, an interview with Megan Fitzgerald, the Managing Lawyer of Strategic Litigation at Fitzroy Legal Service. This morning we're listening to part one, um, how the state is systemically racist. And for listeners um, who, you know, may be sensitive to some of these topics, just uh, a language or sorry, a content warning. Um, this is going to be discussing some some difficult uh, conversations about systemic racism, about a death of an Aboriginal person in custody. So if you need to talk to anyone, you can call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. And for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander folks in particular, you can call the dedicated dedicated line 13 YARN. That's 139276. Um, I probably should start off by acknowledging that we're speaking on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and I, because of the nature of it I need to pay my respects to Veronica's family and her community. Um, yeah. 
All right. So can you tell? So in 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 this environment where you know it's it's it'll be accepting for people from the indigenous community not to be trusting of the police um, with the history of violence in this country. What was the role of Fitzroy Legal Service? Uh, we had a really specific role, which is we came in as uh, what's called an interested party, um, and we came to really focus um, our intervention on issues that are around harm reduction and um, the specific impacts of the way a lot of the laws and the bail changes and the custodial conditions and the medical treatment that's available in in custodial environments, the way that's influenced by stigma and discrimination was a central focus for us. And that intervention was grounded in work that Fitzroy Legal Service has done for 23 years now through the Drug Outreach Lawyer Program, which is in the city of Yarra. And um, that that program um, has actually supported thousands of people who use drugs uh, and one of the things that was a really strong motivator for us was the demographics of the community that we were working with. Um, 90% of them identify as having a mental illness, 50% of primary homeless, a further 25% secondary homeless. Uh, a large number of them identify as having a cognitive impairment as well. And I think most notably for me was the fact that 30% of them were from refugee background and a, a further 20% were from an Aboriginal background. So that means together that's 50% of that community that we would classify as survivors of war. Um, so we felt a pretty strong obligation to come in with that very specific expertise around the intersection of the law and the health condition with all of its complexity that impacts people who use drugs. Um, as a proviso, I'll just say, obviously, there's a huge number of people in the state who use drugs who are not involved with the criminal justice system, but our work is with the people who are involved with the criminal justice system and who are massively disadvantaged because of really complicated factors that are not connected to the seriousness of their offending, but they're connected to the seriousness of the conditions that they're battling daily. So that's that's what we, we came in with. What what does it tell us? What does this case tell us about how stigma works? How did it, how it manifests in modern in modern Australia? It's it's a really important case. Um, I don't ever want to separate it from Veronica's life um, because it was she's a very important person in the community, and you know we're members of the we're members of the community as well. Um, or, or I am, and. Uh, but it was an incredibly important case because it was the first time that it was really openly spoken about the fact that stigma kills and it's embedded in um, structures, it's embedded in policies, it's embedded in relationships, it's embedded in the way people interpret information, uh, the way they interpret suffering um, and worthiness and it's also internalised by people in terms of their ability to assert their rights but all of that's reinforced back and forth and it's the first case that I know of that's actually really focused in on that issue of stigma and it's interesting the, the so, so the framework of stigma and discrimination was one that was actually adopted by the coroner as a way that helped him to understand what had happened and they found that stigma was a causative factor in Veronica's passing um, 
So that in itself is a really important finding and it has a lot of ramifications in the way that people think about people who use drugs who are trying to access support in all the way, not not just in custodial environments, but in public health environments and, and all of that. And it also deconstructed a little bit because the condition of drug dependence is a criminalised condition, you can't really get a higher level of stigma. And stigma in the dictionary definition means the mark of shame. And um, it deconstructed that a bit. It's like, okay, it's a criminal offence. Certain things are criminal offences, but people are human beings and they're deserving of treatment when they're in suffering. They're deserving of appropriate treatment that's relevant to what's happening for them. Um, it was a... It's just such an important case. That's one of the reasons. Um, another reason is that through the expert evidence and, and the process of a coronial inquest, which is a, a truth-seeking uh, exercise, yeah, and it's also um, directed to preventing future deaths, there was uh, a, a changed finding in cause of death, which was that her Veronica's passing was extreme malnutrition, um, she was 33 kilos at the time that she passed. Um, she also had Wilkie syndrome and she was in extreme opiate withdrawal. So it became a more complicated story. Um, so there's certain things that happen when you're in that physical condition that make you extremely vulnerable. But what the coroner actually spoke about is that because of that uh, marker of being a drug user, the suffering is normalised and invisibilized it's like oh well that's what happens and so is it did they fight with the is does that sort of indicating that people people um, respond differently to someone who who is a drug user absolutely i mean that that's something that's been um researched a lot uh so according to the world health organization it uh in injecting drug use is the most stigmatised health condition in the world. Um, and also there's research, continu there's a continuous rolling research coming out of New South Wales that shows, for example, about 70% of public health service providers self-identify as discriminating against people who use drugs, like as if it's an okay thing to do. And a further 70% of people who use drugs don't go to health services because they don't want to deal with the stigma, which in the community... People know that that's the case. People avoid services for those reasons. Um, but one of the issues, of course, in a closed environment like a prison, you have no recourse to other assistance. Uh, you don't have recourse to your community and you don't have recourse to a health practitioner who's an addiction specialist, for example, who's sensitised to those issues. You don't have access to safe environments. And when Veronica passed, she'd called for help on the intercom 49 times. So it's a profoundly devastating set of circumstances. And also um, it was really important to us to fight um, for that story to be told. I can't imagine what that must have been like. Honestly, like that must have been terrifying. Did the inquest find that the that the state is is um, that is systemically racist? It found the analysis of um, a lot of 
Yes, in short. Uh, the the way the so so there was a range of bail reforms that came in in two thousand eighteen, and what they did was they made it so that if you commit a further offence when you're on bail, there's a what's called a reverse onus presumption, which means that there's an assumption that you shouldn't be re-granted bail. One of the reasons you don't get granted bail is because you failed to appear previously or you weren't able to comply with a corrections order. Um, and it used to be that you had to be a, a significant risk to the community in terms of violence, like serious violence. And, and these reforms were actually introduced to to deal with violent offenders. But the greatest impact has been on the most vulnerable communities and the, the highest um, community impacted has been Aboriginal women, which is... Um, a, so, so there was a lot of deconstructing of... What, how is that all working? Like something that looks bland on its face is not bland. It's it's extremely structured. So once you look a little bit deeper... Yeah. yeah. So if you've got an over-representation of homeless community, for example, who are Aboriginal, which we know, then you've automatically got a lot of people who are less likely to show up to court and then they're likely to get caught up in this remand system and they call it the carceral churn. And um, what it means also is a lot of people end up doing quite a, you know, custodial stints for things that they never would get a criminal sentence for um, just because of the way the laws operate. So there's a really um, substantial campaign that's being led by the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service um, and it's called Pockham's Law, and I'd really recommend people get online and sign up to that, which is really pushing for bail reforms, which were recommended by the coroner, um, to get rid of that reverse onus presumption and only have that in place where people are actually a risk, a significant risk of violence to the community. So right now, so with the changes, does the person in that's on bail have to prove... Is the onus on them to prove that they're going to appear? Yeah, and they've got to show that there's exceptional circumstances and it's it's a very high threshold. But the problem is it can be for something like an alleged shop theft, which is not, you know, it means that the punishment is, is no longer fitting the crime just because of this, you know, amendment, um, which really needs to be changed as a matter of urgency because people are dying because of this. And the other thing that happens is within the custodial environment, like one of the things that they talked about is that you need to have a six-week term, a sentence, before you can get on to opiate substitution therapy or, you know, so these short-term kind of Remand episodes are incredibly destabilizing for people's health, um, but they're not long enough. I mean, they should. One of the recommendations is that people should be put on to appropriate treatment as soon as Immediate, immediately. Yeah. Like that's not that kind of policy is just evidence of stigma and discrimination. But um, it's it's also a lot of the people from our perspective in our workplace, um, which I think is typical of of the community that are caught up in this. Um, 
have incredibly complex health conditions, you know, uh, and and prison is not an appropriate place for them to be managed. And I think um, the other sort of deeper story that uh, comes out quite strongly came came out quite strongly through the elders' evidence and um, other expert evidence is that there's just so much investment that should be made before. Uh, so, so one of the things is, you know, there's court orders that you you become abstinent and provide, I'm sorry. And, but you provide clean urines. But there's no uh, facility or rehabilitation facility for seven months for you to do that. So then you've breached your, you know, your, condition. your, your, your conditions, and then you're in the reverse onus, and it's like it just compounds and compounds but one of the other incredibly important findings that came through was that um the that substance use disorder which is um it's in the dsm-5 as a mental health condition and it's not drug use like people can use recreationally and and they wouldn't meet those criteria but when people have a level of dependence where you know they're compulsively unable to not do that um that's a mental health condition it's in a protect it's a protected attribute and it should actually support people not to be remanded rather than to be remanded because it's a vulnerability that they face if they go into the custodial environment and i think the other thing that's incredibly important is dual diagnosis is just so common but all of this is known um but it was a very courageous and thorough finding from coroner mcgregor so there's quite, you know, there's a lot of gratitude in the profession that someone has analysed all of this so deeply and given such a strong finding. All good. Yeah. Hi, yeah. So we were just listening to uh, an interview with um, Meg, uh, Megan Fitzgerald from Fitzroy Legal Service um, about the tragic death in custody of uh, Veronica Nelson and how stigma uh, contributed, well, was a cause of, of her passing. Yeah, and I'm um, really excited to hear the second half of that interview next week. And thanks again to Spike for that incredible chat. Um, just a reminder that if any of this brought up um, any feelings of distress for you, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. And for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners, you can call 13YARN. That is 139276, 139276 for crisis support and yarning without judgment and confidential, culturally safe conversations 24-7. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, 
Yeah, nah. Year Life Plus Iran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. Accent women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are, two, where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Uh, and we're back. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR. So, um, yeah, this week's been homeless. From the set, August 7th to 13th is Homelessness Week in Australia. And to discuss the work of CoHealth Central City, which is a not-for-profit community health organisation dedicated to providing health services to the homeless and marginalised communities, we're having a phone conversation with Outreach Activities and Housing and Health Worker, Bo Branch. Hey, Bo. Hey, Spike. How are you doing? I'm going well, mate. All right, mate. So tell us a bit about what CoHealth does and, and who it provides support to, mate. Yeah, so co-health, we're always looking after vulnerable people, really. Uh, and our primary uh, health provider, so for people in crisis, and that could be around a variety of issues around homelessness, uh, but it's also AOD issues, so alcohol and other drugs, mental health, and just general people that might be isolated and just probably marginalised from the mainstream services and kind of just need that extra assistance and support around health services. So, man, what? So, from a perspective of community health service, what do you what do you got? What's homelessness week about? Like, what do you see? Yeah, yeah. it's a great question as well. So, I think the first point of it, there's two big points. I think the first one's just spreading that awareness of the impact of people experiencing homelessness, um, and then kind of trying to get a bit more of an understanding around. Uh, those people's feelings and, and the situation they're in because uh, it is a really difficult one for them. Um, and then the second one, I think, is really I think it's a great time just to kind of uh, have a think and discuss solutions, especially from kind of uh, a support agency and organisation's point of view, but um, spread that kind of uh, the love around, but kind of come up with some solution, solutions around uh, ending homelessness and, and just making the society better to support people. So how did so how how was it commemorated this year? How did go, how did you guys recognise homelessness week? Yeah, so we've been doing a few little things all around the office and uh, just simple little things by doing a few little care hampers and some material aid stuff, um, which is just a little token really, but it's just a, a client coming in on crisis response and. Um, it's been nice. I've just got little care packages for them and just a nice little sign. But our big event this year was actually yesterday. So we actually had a homeless cup. So I'm lucky enough to be involved in a, a group recreation program called the, the CoHealth Kangaroos, uh, which runs every Wednesday. And we actually had uh, a homeless cup for a football match. So we actually had 
Uh, two football matches going on in Kensington yesterday. Uh, so we had Co-Health Kangaroos play the Maryborough Ravens. Uh, they're linked up to Recklink up there. And then we also had the Gen U Geelong Cats uh, come up and uh, play Wind Bay as well. And they're linked to Latitude as well, which also work with young people around homelessness as well. So it's really great. So I guess what that really points to, and this might be really counterintuitive to anyone that's listening, that homelessness can be sort of like an isolating experience. Is that what you're saying? Is like uh, people feel like they're isolated even though they're in the public sort of 24-7? Oh, it, definitely. It's an isolating experience. And I think the, the hardest thing as well is, is that just getting that access to supports as well. And it's a really difficult one because I don't think one of the biggest misconceptions around homelessness is it can really affect anyone out there. So um, anyone can be impacted by homelessness and it's often out of people's control. Um, people don't choose to be homelessness. Uh, so it's a really difficult one. But, yeah, the isolation's key. And I think that's what co-health do really well. Um, we've got a number of outreach uh, support programs We've also got the group recreation, as I've already touched on, and just having those ones going to clients, it can really make them less isolated. What do you reckon are the are like the primary health, like the main health issues that people face, Bo, for people that are experiencing like sleeping rough or whatever? Well, I think it's just kind of losing trust in a lot of those services and uh, not having that self-esteem, confidence, and just past trauma and experience with dealing some of these mainstream services that have just made them not even look after themselves and kind of just not even wanting to touch base around their health services. So um, it's really valuable um, when we can get out there and, and link all these people back into these health services and GPs, allied health, dental, um, and then there's a whole range of other things. Like a lot of the, the people out there, they're, they're struggling. They're, they've got no belongings, but they don't even have ID as well. So uh, it, it's really hard. Without ID and a bank account, it's really hard to live these days. Everything's done so electronically, and it's just getting harder and harder for people out there. So I guess, so did you mean, so do you guys actually, you, you guys do do housing applications, Yeah. We do. So a lot of the housing's a bit out of our control, yeah. uh, but we do do housing applications through uh, the public health system there, through the Victorian Housing Register. Yeah. Um, and, and you do need a VHR these days to, to be able to be following up any housing, and that's community housing. Um, sometimes it's even rooming houses that aren't even suitable for a lot of people these days. So uh, that's the important one we do. We, we're putting through the applications to really start that initial process for the housing. How difficult is it to house someone in any sort of like, yeah, ha, yeah like e even a rooming house or crisis to come? How difficult is that in the current environment? Oh, it's massively. I don't think people would understand. And a lot of the accommodation there pre-COVID probably wasn't even really suitable for a lot of people out there. But we're not even seeing that these rooming houses and privatised rooming houses, this unsuitable ones, they're still full now. So we can't even get our people struggling, rough sleeping, couch surfing, living on the streets into these unsuitable housing. So it's just so hard. Just the, the availability is just out of control at the moment. So the biggest thing, suitable housing, affordable housing and availability, they're the three main things and it's all just, uh, it, it's really difficult.
what, who do you, is your biggest cohort of Central City, Bo? Like, who, who, who are the main, like, who are the main people that use the service? Yeah, so uh, it's a whole range, and that's the biggest thing. It, it's a real diverse client group, and as I said, it's there's misconceptions around who is homeless, and um, it's not that generalised, rough, shaggy, kind of entrenched-looking guy living on the street. It's not. It's we're daily living just skyrocketing. It's we're seeing single parents struggling to kind of do private rental, uh, people holding down jobs even, but maybe COVID affected their jobs and now they're only working casual or part-time. Um, it's a real diverse client group that we've got coming into our crisis response on a daily daily basis and uh, trying to support every, every person coming in. Um, you've got to sit down with them. You've got to build that rapport first, though, but it's doing those assessments, building up a goal-directed care plan and then working out and kind of these individual tailored supports for that individual. So um, it's a difficult process, but um, I think we, we do it really well at Central City and we're always looking at improving it as well. But, yeah, there's there's no one homeless person and that's probably the most difficult uh, point to get across sometimes, I think. Okay, so do you want to remind people where Central City is, Bo? Yeah, it's so Central City. It's just near the Queen Vic Market. So it's 53 Victoria Street and currently open for drop-in between 9.30 and 12.30. And then our afternoons are now set up for appointment only. So that's when we'll, we'll book in for those assessments, book in for those follow-up appointments where we're following up legal issues, housing, linking into health services, as I said, the allied health, physio, dietitian on site, nursing, and then anything else, like the uh, the really hard ones with the ID, uh, some, a lot of our clients coming in that they don't have their birth certificate. Without that, it can be really difficult to get a lot of things rolling. So, um, yeah, so 53 Victoria Street, Coyle Central City. Okay, man. So just uh, just the final thing. So if people want to learn more about the work of CoHealth or and the support they provide, or you know, not for profit community health, what what can they do to where can they go to find find out more about what yeah community well, health? Well, we've got the got the website there, and I think um, jumping online to to the website, but um, we're more than welcome uh, to to come on down and and have a chat if you really want to try and work things out and just understand a bit more about what we do, but you can also give us a call as well. What's the number, bro? Yeah, so 99-9448-5536. But I think one of the best resources um, out there to try, and if you want to maybe start volunteering or just learning more about your community, is is the libraries and community health centres. I think they're the two really really good ones um, out there. Libraries, we use the libraries a lot at CoHealth um, and linking people back in because I think the biggest thing is for people living on the streets and and struggling, um, it's giving them that connection to the wider community and connecting them back to the community and the best way we're finding to do that is one of the best is uh, the libraries. All right, mate. Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for your time this morning and for speaking to... Um, th- um Breakfast at the 3CR. Cheers. Thanks, Spike. You have a great day. Thank you, mate. You too.
And we uh, just heard from Bo Branch, who is uh, a worker at CoHealth Central City, which is a not-for-profit community health organization dedicated to providing health services to uh, the homeless and marginalized communities. And um, again, as Spike has mentioned a couple of times in this episode, it is Homelessness Week, uh, August 7th to 13th. It is running. And yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's so important to... Also, um, in these conversations, be aware of, you know, the agency and resourcefulness of homeless folks themselves and the kind of amazing work they're doing. I just wanted to throw to you because we had a conversation, Spike, um, you know, a couple of months ago now, I think, um, about some of that, you know, zine making and resource distribution as well, because we've heard from the sort of services side of thing where you can, things where you can find information. Um, but do you want to plug the, the zine? Yes. Yeah, so look out for there's a zine produced by people who have had a lived experience for people that have had a lived experience called Need to Know. You can find it at most health serv- community health services, um, at the Red Cross, um, the emergency, uh, most of the, well, the emergency rooms in the CBD and at the City of Melbourne libraries. So if you want to support um, people who have had a lived experience um, producing their own material, and I think that's the best work co-health, you know, community health can do, mm. is supporting people who are having a lived experience um, to get back, as Bo said, I guess, to connect with each other um, and, yeah, um, and, and educate the public as to what's actually happening for them mm. in their own words. Yeah, because, I mean, people that have, um, ex- you know, have lived experience of, of homelessness, it's not just lived experience, but it's a lived expertise of how to navigate these systems um, of, you know, what the pressures people are facing on the on the day-to-day rather than, you know, just looking at, like, a top-down approach. Um, I? Yeah. I just want to add, like, I, I didn't ask Bo this question because I didn't want to, you know, I got my... Yeah, I didn't want to interrogate him, but I think what's what's important to recognise is that Homelessness Australia pointed out in the last 10 years, $1 billion has been cut out of public housing budgets and homelessness services. Um, so, you know, what we're seeing, even though during Homelessness Week you might hear and see politicians talk a good game, in actuality, that's not – their actions – you know, belie that, that, you know. Mm. So it's really important that when when we hear people talk about homelessness and the fact the last census there were one million empty properties in Australia. So the housing crisis isn't necessarily what it seems. Mm. There's a lot of fa- there's a lot there's a lot more to it. Yeah. Um, and so it's you know the in a supply and demand sort of uh, economy like this whole the capitalist thing. When things are scarce or that there's a, uh, the impression is created mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. things are scarce, prices go up, rents go up, and, that, and it makes it harder for the people that we've been talking about today. People who've experienced trauma, they've been in contact with the prison system, they might be of, you know, they might be a different, um, you know, brown, black, you know, like this, you know, for, for life for people who aren't part of the mainstream, like the start, the start line isn't the same for everyone in our community. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, what Bo was touching on as well is, um, I think part of the reason why we're seeing this broader framing of housing crisis and, um, treating this as almost a new phenomenon when it's not, um, is because it's hitting higher income brackets all of a sudden. Now there's a broader focus on housing crisis, but, you know, as a reality, like, you know, a housing crisis has been ongoing since 1788 for First Nations peoples <laughs> having their land stolen. So it's like, um, 
this uh, this broader understanding now of the pressures that people are facing as the cost of living crunch is occurring, um, I think should make everybody aware that we are all interconnected. We're all in community and we should be looking um, at, you know, the self-organizing that homeless homeless folks are doing, um, being directed by that and looking to plug into initiatives um, that people already have going rather than reinventing the wheel. Now, I'm going to go to a track and this one is... Um, this is a beautiful collaboration by Blue Mountains locals who came together to give voice to their concerns about the local housing crisis that they're experiencing. And so this came through a series of songwriting and singing workshops that were run by volunteers to bring people together, some of whom were experiencing homelessness or are experiencing extreme housing insecurity, um, to empower them through producing a song, which they're hoping will continue to spread the message and raise awareness about the devastating impacts of housing insecurity and homelessness. And I think this is really important because it draws attention um, to homelessness and housing insecurity in the regions, which I think we don't talk about very much, but um, especially for places like the Blue Mountains in New South Wales, where there are so many people tree changing, there's a lot of Airbnb properties, um, a lot of people want to go out there for the beautiful scenery, but then we see Darug and Gundungara people sleeping rough on their own country. We see people that have lived in the community for decades not being able to afford properties, um, and so this one, I think, is a really important um, tribute to that and, you know, captures that spirit of fight and resistance. So this one is called Somewhere to Live.
And that was the song Somewhere to Live by Blue Mountains locals who came together to give voice to their concerns about the local housing crisis. And this came out on the 6th of June this year. And you're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. The state government has sold 578 hectares of public land to private developers. They're building private public partnership model housing over public housing land and it's just not on. Housing is just massively expensive. It's never been effective in this country to rely on the market to provide decent housing for people. Rent has risen by 21%. That's median rent across the country as of January this year. As the rents keep rising, so must we. And we must stand together as a collective because this war cannot be won by the few. It will only be victorious by the many. 3CR. Stay tuned. Stay radical. Local Food Connections interviews with food producers, backyard growers and urban farmers. Join us every Sunday morning at 10am on 3CR Community Radio 855 on your AM dial, on 3CR Digital Radio and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. Local Food Connections, a show about the importance of local food in sustainable communities. From dust to dust, you gotta just trust that upper crust and maintain that good terrain from whence you came. So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijoma Umbinyo Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community Radio. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law, 6pm Tuesdays. If you're struggling with drugs alcohol, gambling or food, or concerned about somebody who is, tune in to The Living Free Show on 3CR at 1pm every Thursday. I don't know how I got there, but and I couldn't stop it. I had stopped expecting that anybody cared. Never enough. I'm never enough. It's never enough. He's never enough. That was the confusion. Tune in to Living Free, stories of recovery from addictive behaviour, Thursdays at 1pm on 3CR. Or listen at 3CR on digital radio or podcasts and live streaming on 3cr.org.au. Being able to centre myself and be okay in myself and turn my world around. 
living free. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. And we're back on 3CR 855 AM. And it is eight in the morning, and we are now going to uh, be joined by Fiona York, who's the executive officer of Housing for the Age Action Group, and Professor Wendy Stone of Swinburne University to discuss today's launch of the Aging in a Housing Crisis report at Parliament House in Canberra. Now, this report, commissioned by Housing for the Aged Action Group and co-authored by Wendy, along with researchers at Western Sydney University and Curtin University, analyzes the housing circumstances of people in Australia aged 55 years and older, based on an analysis of 2021 census data and homelessness estimates. Good morning, Fiona and Wendy. Thanks so much for joining me. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that I was able to get on to you because I know you're both, um, you know, going to be present at that launch uh, later today, I believe at 12.15 at Parliament House. And of course, later on, we will um, ask you to give us all the details for how people can join online. Um, but I thought maybe we could start off by um, asking Fiona uh, about hearing a bit about what homelessness can look like for older people, because I feel like this can be marginalized from mainstream public and political discussions about housing insecurity. And also because of the, um, I guess, variable nature of people presenting at homelessness services, um, it can kind of slip under the radar. Um, So could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. What we're doing this week is bringing eight older women who have an experience of housing insecurity and homelessness to Canberra. And none of those women would be ordinarily considered to be homeless or counted in homelessness statistics. So their circumstances are varied, but what they do have in common is that they've had um, a life of, of, of work and looking after children and looking after family members, but that work has often been low paid, it's been intermittent, and they've had insecure housing, which means that something along the lines of a relationship breakup or an eviction notice or a rent increase or even getting sick means that that leads to homelessness. Um, So it does look quite different for older people in a lot of ways, particularly older women, and often they don't grunt up at homelessness services and they're not counted in the statistics, which Mm. is why it's really important for us to be looking at broader sets of data to try and get our heads around the scale of the issue. Yeah, and I mean, it's like, um, it's such an important um, 
issue to reflect on as well because I think there's also homogenization within um, older folks experiencing homelessness um, in terms of uh, depictions. I, I know that there are there's a great amount of diversity in the way that people experience homelessness based on their social location, um, whether they're culturally and linguistically diverse, uh, whether they're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. You're, you're totally right. I think... Um, People do experience housing insecurity and homelessness very differently. So we found that, um, in particular, people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander older people often experience severe overcrowding. Um, and often women experience things like couch surfing and staying with friends and family rather than the traditional rough sleeping concept that we might have. Um, we also, separate to this piece of research, have conducted um, research with older LGBTI folk and their housing circumstances are quite different as well. Um, they may be relying on friends um, for their housing and for their caring because um, as they've aged, they may, don't, may, they may not have um, you know, family connections and things. So that it is quite different depending on your circumstances. Mm. And what we do know about older culturally and linguistically diverse people is it's quite difficult to navigate the system, um, particularly if English isn't your first language and you have a lot of barriers to accessing mainstream services. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and that, you know, in, in, a, in a system where you might not necessarily feel comfortable accessing those services yeah. um, or not even know that they're available to you. Um, so I think maybe we can go to uh, the, the topic of... Um, the services that Housing for the Age Action Group uh, provides. And, and you've got the Home at Last service, which provides supports to older people experiencing homelessness or housing stress. So can you tell us a bit about how the crisis is reflected at the level of support sought from your housing workers, um, as well as the available a- availability sorry, of options Home at Last has been able to connect older tenants with? And uh, Wendy, please feel free to, to chime in with more of a, a broader systemic view of um, you know, accessing support from, from mainstream services. Yeah, I guess um, our service is the only one of its type in Australia. We have a specialist older persons housing service that connects people um, with long-term affordable housing, and that's mainly public and community housing. But if they're not eligible for that, um, then we would try to get them into low-cost retirement housing. And one of the things that we've noticed over the last few years is that we're getting a lot more people that are presenting to us in crisis. They're receiving eviction notices and rent increases that they can't afford. We still do have relatively good success rates in getting people into public housing because there is a priority housing system here in Victoria for 55 plus, but we don't have that in other states. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that we'd like to see is better services across the whole country, as well as addressing the eligibility problems of trying to get people into housing. Mm. And Wendy, did you want to um, add in on that just in terms of um, presentation at, at support services? Yeah, but I think this is something um, definitely that Fiona has far more experience with and, and expertise. But I guess I, I've been really um, privileged to be part of this delegation this week. So we have, um, as Fiona said, um, several people who have been just bravely and vulnerably sharing their stories so we can put a human face to this crisis. And what comes through really clearly is that this isn't someone over there or someone other or different from us. This could be any of us, and it can and, and is often. And the stories these uh, uh, women this week have been telling um, through a series of meetings we've been holding in Parliament um, leading up to our launch today is that they really didn't see themselves as 
deserving of help. They always felt that there were others who probably need services more than they did, so they didn't use them. They felt guilty for using them. There's also shame and humiliation. Some of the people here with us have been lifetime renters or have had lifelong health issues, which have made it really difficult for them to maintain uh, secure work, secure family life and secure housing. And for others, it's been a total shock. They've reached uh, midlife or, or later life even um, and found themselves divorced, uh, coming out of potentially um, abusive relationships or they've had life events happen. They've just got sick or something's gone wrong. And in these situations, um, they, they haven't known what to do. They haven't perceived themselves as homeless. Uh, so they haven't necessarily uh, reached out to services until... Um, you know, they've been in crisis for a significant period of time mm. in many cases. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that really adds, you know, um, a, quite a sort of comprehensive um, analysis of things where, where you're thinking about the barriers to access people might have, their perceptions of themselves, and also the va- the availability of services, as Fiona mentioned before, because, you know, I know that delegates um, that are, that are uh, you know, providing testimony across the week um, and that are going to be joining you both at the, the launch uh, come from all around the country. But as Fiona mentioned, the only dedicated um, service for people over 55 um, you know, in in severe housing insecurity and stress is in Victoria. Um, so uh, back to Fiona, while acknowledging that people might desire to live in a range of different tenure types, I, I know you mentioned how uh, public and community housing is as mm. desirable, and I'm wondering if you can tell us why the type of housing is such a key consideration for the majority of older tenants facing housing insecurity and um, maybe how this relates to a decline in state and federal investment in public housing as well. Yeah, so I guess the, the fundamental thing that everybody needs, but particularly older people need, is, is affordability, security, and that includes security of tenure, mm. um, as well as accessibility. So older people that may have an injury um, or, or some sort of um, you know, chronic illness means that they often find their private rentals not okay to live in anymore. They might be too cold, too hot, or actually inaccessible to get into the shower or, or up and down the stairs. So... Firstly, we need well-designed and well-built um, housing where you can age in place. Even if the climate does change, um, you will be able to be safe um, in that housing. So that's a really important thing, environmental standards and accessibility standards in housing. But fundamentally, it's about affordability and access. And the market is not going to provide that to the majority of people that are in this cohort. So the research has shown over the last 10 years that there's um, a 73% increase in the number of older renters and there's um, around 270,000 people aged 55 plus who are living in unaffordable rental or they're already homeless and in marginal, marginal housing. And the market's not going to provide that because they don't provide housing that costs less than $200 a week. Mm. So if we don't have a market solution and we're living in very unaffordable and very low quality private rental, the government has an obligation to house its citizens well by providing public and community housing. So when we're talking about a couple of hundred here, a couple of thousand there, there is nowhere near enough to be housing those 270,000 older people that need it right now. So that's what we're asking the government to do, is provide um, housing for those people immediately, if possible. Um, all stops should be, should be pulled for this mm. across all levels of government. Um, public housing is the responsibility of all levels of government. 
and we need all of them to be working together to address this crisis. Absolutely. And I mean, it is just so damning hearing that 73% increase in in, um, in in older renters, you know, um, I guess, aside from the sort of question of home ownership more broadly, this does really point to the level of unaffordability and insecurity that people are having um, in their later stages of life, where um, I guess from a broader life stage uh, approach, you would maybe assume that people are achieving a greater sense of stability and the ability, as you said, to age in place and, um, you know, to maintain a, a sense of independence, to maintain a sense of community as well um, as they get older, uh, to be around people uh, that they can be in community with is is such a, a vital part of um you know, being able to age in place. And so um, I thought maybe we can turn to some of uh, the report's findings. And Wendy, the Aging in a Housing Crisis report um, launches today, as we've discussed, and as one of the lead researchers on the project, I was hoping that you could take us through uh, some of the data that you analyze and how your analysis was informed by the lived experiences of older people that were that are experiencing housing insecurity. So what did this process look like? Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, so what we've done in this report is um, really tried to put a figure on and just highlight the scale of this crisis. So there are, there are a couple of ways we've come at this. Number one is, although we're talking um, so far this morning about people mostly in crisis or in, um, you know, in, in unaffordable private rental um, uh what we've actually done is really try to shift the dialogue here because we know from a lot of research we've been doing uh, across decades now that these kinds of problems don't just start at the homelessness service. That, that problem comes from somewhere and there's a pipeline. So as I said, some of these um, people have got lifeline, uh, lifelong precarity, but for others it emerges. And what we're increasingly finding is that it emerges as a direct result of the housing system and uh, structural insecurity. So what I mean by that is that we've taken Australian Bureau of Statistics census data from the most recent year, which was 2021. We've looked at that over time. So we've looked at a decade of change. We've also looked at homelessness estimates also from the Bureau of Statistics put out at the same time. Those statistics are based on service data, census data and a range of other sort of data sets that are combined to estimate homelessness. Um, some of which though isn't picked up as Fiona mentioned because um, people don't necessarily uh, engage with those um, data processes and services. But what we've really tried to do is shift away from uh, the language and the thinking about what is it about people that leads them to become housing insecure or homeless and instead turn to the system itself and say, what is wrong with the system that is creating and actually producing precarity in people's lives that looks like this crisis for them? Mm. We've started off at the most secure housing Kenya in Australia uh, and, the, you know, the great Australian dream and the pillar of our welfare state. After World War II, we have policies that were deliberately and explicitly uh, set up so that people could afford in a family situation to uh, buy their home uh, and reach retirement years with without having to pay mortgage or rental costs. So really the idea is that age pension levels are set on a level that 
assumes that people will already own their home outright. Mm. What we're finding, though, is a decline in that outright ownership. So that pillar of the welfare state is beginning to really crumble over a long term now. And uh, so we also document a decline in outright owners. Only 58% of 55 and overs now have a no mortgage. So that's 42% of the population of older people who have something else. And we find also, if we look at mortgage debt, this is really a growing and emerging worrying trend we found over 300,000 low and very low income older people now living in Australia with mortgage debt. So there's one and a half million in total of older people with mortgage debt uh, at 2021 figures, but with 300,000 of those are really uh, in the very low income area and that we think are in crisis. Mm. We don't have any current supports in Australia to enable those people to stay in the homes. So for many of those people, unfortunately, they could be uh, looking at having to exit home ownership, which does actually provide them, you know, the capacity to live well and, and securely and engage in society and all those good things and maintain their health and really participate. But instead, we're seeing, um, as Fiona's already mentioned, one of the, the really worrying, burgeoning crises that's unfolding is that we now have 700,000 people in the older age bracket who are living in private rental housing. And this is, a, this is a very lightly regulated tenure. In Victoria, we have some rental laws, as people will you know, maybe realise, that have moved towards a little bit more security for renters, um, uh, the, the getting rid of no-ground evictions and those kinds of things, but it's still imperfect and a long way to go. So this is a, a sector in which older people aren't necessarily able to make modifications to the home that they need to. They're not necessarily able to have, um, you know, pets. People can, can complain and, and um, not allow them to do that. Mm. So this is a really precarious sector where leases are typically about six to 12 months long. And the human cost of this insecurity is, uh, is palpable. When we've been speaking with a lot of older people this week here in Parliament, um, what this means is that people are falling out of home ownership with mortgage debt, not necessarily able to, to compete in the private rental market and heading straight into homelessness. Mm. So we have this growing group of people presenting at services who really just did not expect to see themselves in this situation as they age. And so I suppose we're shifting the dial on the language and the, the conversation from the previous decade or so of politics, we've had a conversation about what is wrong with people. We, we, that's, that doesn't work. Uh, we need to really focus on what is wrong with the system and how now do we fix it because we do have solutions and we're here speaking, as Fiona said, with, uh, with our launch today and, and as many decision makers as possible this week uh, about the evidence we have that we know can really work and that in the most urgent and first instance is a very uh, clear increase in the in the supply of social and affordable housing. Affordable housing, though, in the market isn't affordable for older people living on a fixed income age pension or on job on job seeker. So, mm. uh, what we really know is that people on these very low incomes can't afford, say, eighty percent of market rent for a you know if you think about a unit in Heidelberg or somewhere. That's just way out of reach. What we really need is some ring fencing, affordable housing where 
where that model is set at 25% or 30% of the income for people living on government pensions and benefits because otherwise we're just actually setting this system up to harm people and Mm. to cause a massive societal impact. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, you know, what you have said throughout the the report's findings and the analysis that you've conducted, I'm sure is really textured by, um, you know, the testimony that people are, are providing um, from that sort of lived experience group. I was wondering if you could, if you could speak to maybe how some of the, the, the folks that have joined you in, in Canberra have maybe exemplified some of these things and, you know, being able to translate that across to policymakers. Yeah, it's been quite an amazing um, and powerful experience. I think, um, the research team in this um, particular report, we've all been in, involved over many years with, with uh, you know, qualitative and quantitative work that really tries to link stories and numbers. In our report today, we try to really establish the scale of the problem. So we're focused on numbers, but actually being in uh, a group of people sharing uh, the scale of the problem that we're enumerating and how that actually looks on the ground for people, what it looks like in people's lives is incredible. But we do have people who can speak to every experience we're talking about. It's, you know, it's the people who have left um, or had to leave uh, marriages. It's people who are caring for elderly parents and uh, adult children. It's people with health crises. None of these things in and of themselves ought to lead to homelessness. They really are scenarios that people are describing in their lives uh, that really need support and secure housing for them to manage. And, and the, the power of the, the people who are telling their stories ever so bravely many times this week is quite remarkable. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, that, that as you were indicating earlier in this conversation um, this morning, there's not just one type of story. Um, People arrive at at crisis from many different pathways and we really do need to recognise that. I suppose if there's one particular way that these lived experiences have informed our research process, it's to look across the housing system in our report because we do know that this problem doesn't just emerge at at a homelessness service out of nowhere. And there are many, many pathways that are opening up in Australia and growing for housing precarity at the moment. Yeah, definitely. And Fiona, did you want to jump in and add anything about the the importance of um, integrating lived experience and lived expertise uh, into this process and uh, especially into this trip to Canberra? It's absolutely been vital. And I think one of the things that's been so powerful is being able to put a face to the numbers and having those voices able to be heard right in the faces of decision makers. And I think although the data might be... um, deciding, having them decide what happens with their policy, they're going to remember those stories. And so we've been so privileged to have this group of older women come up and HAG's been around for 40 years. The last time we brought up a delegation of older people to Canberra was in the 80s and back then there were 790 pensioners on the wait list for public housing and 30 years later, here we are, 35 years later, still saying the same thing and we don't want to be still doing it in another 35 years. So... Hopefully at this moment in time, when housing's on the agenda, in a way that hasn't been before, we'll actually get some change. 
Absolutely. Uh, now, Fiona, earlier this year, um, HAG made a submission to the Victorian Inquiry into the rental and housing affordability crisis. And you've also made a submission to the Federal Inquiry into the extent and nature of poverty in Australia. And both of these draw attention to some of the concerns we've touched on in the discussion so far. So I was wondering if you and maybe also Wendy can speak to some of the key overlapping recommendations made across these submissions and via the report for concerted action, um, as you mentioned before, uh, by federal and state governments on actually addressing housing insecurity and homelessness experienced by older people in Australia. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because one of the responses that we've had when speaking to some of the members of the public service this week has been, can you please make a submission? And we've made countless submissions over many years, basically saying the same thing. And the research has been showing for many, many years the same thing. We know what the problem is. Mm. We know what the solution is. And basically what we need is more investment in public housing. So that's our number one ask, but we also need to... That's the other part of the the equation. Um, And Wendy, did you want to add to that? Yeah, I think um, what what, um, is really indicated um, is that we do know if we we step outside of Melbourne, outside of Victoria, um, this growing problem in the private rental sector, um, it's really a crisis already and it's uh, getting worse. We're focused on older people in this report, but we do know that there's, uh, you know, there are other generations coming up. We're arguing very strongly in our research that responses to housing crisis for older people cannot and should not come at the expense of other generations. Everyone matters. Everyone needs support. Uh, we do need uh, to respect housing as a human right, but there are particular needs that older people have, including in private rental. And... Um, well, we've made some steps in Victoria and the ACT in Queensland around residential tenancy reform. These are definitely not national so far. So there are some states and territories in which uh, people can have no grounds evictions uh, and, and states which are well behind this reform. So uh, one of the just, just one of the several um, levers that we we're really trying to impress here this week is that residential tenancy reform must be national, it must be real, and it must be enforced with compliance, not just um, mm. not just set up, but actually uh, having compliance mechanisms to really uh, secure homes. When there are investors in Australia who really do benefit from capital gains tax exemptions and negative gearing, and that kind of, um, if you like, middle-class welfare, we used to call it, Mm-hmm. Those privileges and, and those settings uh, really need to come with a very firm set of boundaries around the responsibilities of people who become effectively housing providers when they're investing in homes. They are becoming housing housing providers. We need to step away from thinking about this as just a property people invest in and refocusing on what the purpose of housing is. Mm-hmm. It's a home. Uh, so residential tenancy reform is one of the key platforms of reform that we're also seeking. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, coming back to what Fiona said as well, um, these are problems that we've known about for a very, very long time. And, um, you know, we can keep making submissions ad nauseum, but um, at the end of the day, it comes down to policymakers to actually listen to what people have been saying. And I really hope that they they take this incredibly generous and vital testimony, especially of the lived experience group, um, to heart because, you know, these are people's lives and, and not only that, these, these are people's future towards their end of life um, that, 
just can't be ignored. So um, just finally, uh, Fiona, how can listeners tune into the report launch and where can we read a copy? So the report is um, going to be available on our website today from midday and that's sub, um, oldertenants.org.au. And if you look for the events tab there, you can register to um, view the report launch at 12.15 online. Um, so if you get in early um, this morning or pretty much before 11 or so, we can send you the link to that. So, um, yeah, www.oldertenants.org.au. Fantastic. Thank you. And um, is there anything else either of you would like to add before we wrap up? I'd like to just um, reflect to you on some of the stories this week, just very briefly. I think what's become really loud and clear, um, existing evidence show this to, shows this to lots of our research over time. But hearing the stories from people about the way that housing enables them to contribute to society is incredible. So people are able to get that roof sorted over their head and address their mental health, their physical mm. health, and they don't stop there. The people we've been listening to are incredible. They then go and help others. They're able to care. They're volunteer. Um, all of this lost potential um, is incredible, and, and you know it's, it's one of the hidden parts of this whole um, unfortunate um, and, uh, crisis that is avoidable, yeah. is that without, without providing this housing, we're also just missing out on, on the wisdom and, and actions that this wonderful cohort can, can bring to our society. Absolutely. When people move from just surviving to be able to thrive where they are, um, you know, that adds a whole nother dimension of wisdom, expertise and generational, um, you know, uh, knowledge that uh, we would miss if people are continuing to be in crisis. So thank you so much, Wendy and Fiona, for taking the time to join us this morning. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we were just joined by Wendy Stone uh, from Swinburne University and Fiona York, Executive Officer for Housing for the Aged Action Group, uh, to discuss the launch today of the report, Aging in a Housing Crisis, which is commissioned by Housing for the Aged Action Group and uh, has been co-authored by Wendy, as well as researchers at Western Sydney University and Curtin University as well, and analyzes the housing circumstances of people in Australia aged 55 and older, based on analysis of 2020 census data and homelessness estimates and uh, we will have information about how to register to attend today's launch online and to find out more about the work of HAG and don't forget you can also tune into HAG's group show, uh, HAG's show Raise the Roof on 3CR on Wednesdays from 5.30 to 6pm and that's all we've got time for today. Thanks for joining us yeah. Bye. See you next week You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.